So, Jay, what's the new X-Men and Fantastic Four book about? I'm pretty sure that's still under press embargo, Miles. It's fine. We can bleep out the spoilers. Okay. So, remember way back in 1987 when there was the Fantastic Four vs. X-Men series? Oh, yeah, the one where Doctor Doom had to save Shadowcat from dissolving. Man, that was so good. Well, this is kind of a sequel to that. Hooray! Or at least a spiritual sequel. Still cool. Or, anyway, there are some callbacks. I'll take it. See, Franklin Richards is a teenager these days, and as a mutant, he's in the Franklin Richards? Oh man, this is way above our pay grade. Ooh, and then some. Fortunately, I have managed to lure writer Chip Zdarsky onto the podcast so that he can explain what's going on. Okay, awesome. So, Chip, what's the deal with Franklin and I, this is really awkward because I, I can't talk about it because of the press embargo. Oh, it's okay. We're bleeping out all the spoilers. Oh, all right. Um, if you're sure. Okay, yeah. Uh, in that case, um, it doesn't really matter. He just he can't use the to... Why not? Does it have something to do with his reality warping powers? Oh, no. It's... Uh, it's... That guy? Yeah, he's um, done to... What the hell? I mean, Miles, this is we're talking about. Oh yeah, this is territory. It's uh, it's not like this is the first time. This one is a bit different, though. How so? Oh my god, I don't want to say. It's a spoiler. Again, we're gonna bleep all of that out in post. You're fine. Okay. Uh, basically, which meaning that for him they. What? I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 284 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to Crossover City, and welcome to our guest this episode, Chip Zdarsky. Hey, Chip. Hey, how's it going? Oh, really, really well. Thank you for being on the show. And helping us continue to delay Legion Quest. <laughs> oh my god, you're at Legion Quest. I'm so sorry. We've been at the cusp of Legion Quest for like three months now, because it's, it's one of those <laughs> things that almost happens for so long. Yeah. I mean, listeners, we had to tell you eventually, it's actually just one big elaborate troll. We are literally never getting to Age of Apocalypse. <laughs> Age of Apocalypse actually never happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. It's a simple solution. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but yeah, so Chip, you are writing an X-Men Fantastic Four miniseries right now. And as this episode goes live, the first issue will have been out for a few days. All right, and uh, hopefully people haven't bombarded my Twitter with uh, angry uh, tweets. Oh, of course they have. Of course they have. Why would I even say that? Of course they have. I mean, you are kind of standing on the shoulders of a giant here. It's been, what, uh, 30 years since the last X-Men and Fantastic yeah. Four series? That's a lot of time to build up expectations. It's true, and also, um, this is my first real foray into X-Men stuff, and X-Men fans can be very particular, and uh, and um, I had to like cherry-pick some X-Men, and I, 
I felt bad doing it. But it's not your first foray into Marvel or comics at all. You have done quite a few things. I think the first uh, the first book that I ever saw you on was actually as an artist on Sex Criminals, which, hey, that's like coming back. I'm very excited. Yeah, yeah. First issue should be out by the time this, uh, this airs. And uh, yeah, it's weird. It's weird. Because some people don't even know that I draw. Like, it's been so long. People are just like, oh, you write this book called Sex Criminals. I'm like, no, I don't. I draw it. How siloed do those audiences tend to be? Do you do you hear a lot of surprise from Brimpers about, you know, the Marvel books and someone from Marvel saying, well, I loved you on Spider-Man, so I went to see what else you'd done, and oh my god, what is happening here? <laughs> um, well, what I noticed was, like, because my first real Marvel book was Howard the Duck, and um, sex criminals readers would be willing to go over and try out Howard the Duck, but Howard the Duck readers would not necessarily go and check out sex criminals. Which, which kind of makes sense. It does, yeah. I mean, as much as yeah. I love both yeah. books, they're uh, different. Yeah, they're different. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, for, for listeners unfamiliar with it, Sex Criminals is a story about exactly what the title implies, but not in the way that you're thinking. It's about a couple of people no, who no, no, can no, no. stop yeah. time when they <laughs> orgasm and use that ability to rob banks. Yes, exactly. Yeah, which I have to explain to everyone, including like bank managers when I cash checks. It's uh, it's a thing. <laughs> Gloriously awkward. Uh, yeah. Well, thankfully, this book will presumably not cause you those problems. Um, and having read the first issue, it's uh, it's pretty damn good. Nice work, dude. Oh, cool. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was a huge amount of pressure just because um, that original miniseries is my favorite Marvel miniseries. Uh, I love those four issues so much. And uh, and this was my idea to do this mini. Like they, Marvel basically approached me to do more uh, Fantastic Four content. And um, I had just heard the X-Men pitch uh, from Hickman. And I was like, I, I kind of I kind of need to do both of them. And I need to have it be uh, Franklin and Kitty. Now Kate. So way back in House of X and Powers of Ten, I say way back because everything is different. Yeah. History has been rewritten. Uh, there was that scene where Cyclops shows up and talks to the Richards family about their mutant son Franklin coming to Krakoa. And that's kind of the, the main premise of the series, like will he or won't he? So was that something that you had any input on or was that scene already there once Marvel talked to you about doing a series? Um, at that point, so this started uh, one of those Marvel summits where writers and editors all get together and kind of talk about what they're doing. And that was where um, uh, Hickman pitched everything, right? Uh, and, and Jaws dropped and we were all like, what? Like, that's that's so wild. And, uh, and everyone had so many questions, like, what does it mean for this? What does this mean for that? And um, at one point, I think Franklin's name came up. And he mentioned that uh, he had that scene um, in, uh, in House of X. And so that, that I, I filed that away. And then when I, uh, when I pitched the idea of doing a miniseries, they sent me the, the scripts for the first few issues. And so I got to read that scene before it was drawn. And uh, I was like, oh, there's so much to play with here. And uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm grateful that the, uh, the X-Men editors and and hickman um uh let me do it 
because this is the, the, that weird kind of book where it's a Fantastic Four book, but also an X Men book. So I, I had to run things through things through um, uh, Hickman and Dan Slott and uh, all the various editors uh, to make sure that um, I was setting stuff up and answering questions that they were satisfied with. Well, and at the intersection of that, you kind of have the unbelievable continuity nexus that is Franklin Richards. <laughs> How much of that background is going to come up in this or is going to tie in? Oh yeah. It's, it's super tricky. Like, um, like as an example, I left uh, Rachel Summers out of this because that's its own whole thing. So I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm trying to, uh, you, you mentioned earlier that this is a spiritual successor to that original mini and I'm, I'm trying to keep that in place. So we don't we don't do deep continuity dives on all the characters because we've only got four issues. That's the other thing. Like uh, when I came up with the idea, I'm like, well, of course, that's be four issues because the original was four issues. But then um, you know the only team book I've done is Invaders, and in that one, I, I really kept it to three characters for the most part. And so here I'm dealing with dozens of characters, and to kind of get into everyone's mutual history was uh, was a lot. So I ended up really paring it down and focusing on where Franklin's at now um, in relation to um, his first meeting with uh, Shadowcat. And so this is the first time that Kitty and Franklin have seen each other since that 87 miniseries, since his dream self visited her while she was disintegrating in Latveria, right? The first major time, yeah. I mean, um, it's impossible to actually like find specific instances since then and there probably have been since it's been 30 years of comics um but uh but i'm 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 treating it as if it's kind of their first major um coming together since then and because franklin's been aged up as well like a fair amount of time has passed for him uh since he uh last saw her so that kind of changes the dynamic a little bit it's definitely kind of got that feel of the person who was your favorite relative when you were a little kid and then you moved far away from and saw for the next time years later. Yeah. Yeah. Like that original relationship is so sweet. Um, uh, like it, it's the, it's the heart of that miniseries, and it's so, um, it's so lovely. And, uh, the artist on that John Bogdanov, you know, he based Franklin off of his son and, uh, you can tell like, the expressions are so uh, joyful and they feel based on someone who's real. And um, him and, and uh, him and Kate back then were just like such a, such a beautiful uh, relationship that I wanted to be able to honor that in this um, while also incorporating dozens of other characters. And it, I think it really works. I mean, it's, there's just such an adorable oh, dynamic between them in the old miniseries. Like, Franklin reads Kitty the Saggy Baggy Elephant. He calls her Shady Kitty. It's lovely. <laughs> and having yeah. having read uh, reread that series last night and then having read the advanced copy that we got of, of number one of your series today, like, that single panel of the two of them hugging, somehow all of that history is just channeled into one almost silent panel, and I was very impressed. Oh, thanks. Yeah, part of this is the fact that, um, you know, Fantastic Four and the X-Men are coming at this from, you know, obviously different uh, points of view, and um, no one's really listening to Franklin, um, because we tend to treat kids, teenagers, um, as uh, as not individuals, right? As, you know, an extension of themselves. So I want I wanted Kitty to be the one who's just like, you know what? I'm here to listen to you and whatever you want is what I'll help you with. 
What you brought up about how we treat kids is something that I think you touch on really beautifully in the series when Kitty and Wolverine are sort of talking about abridged childhoods for mutants. But that's something that I very much think of in terms of the Richards kids, too. Um, how do you how do you write Franklin and Valeria as realistic, as believable at the ages they are, but with the extraordinary lives and and extraordinary perspectives that they bring? I'm thinking especially of Valeria in this case, but either way, I mean, I feel like writing kids with superpowers is, is one of those things that can go so right or so wrong in so many ways. Yeah. Valeria is a little bit easier because um, she's super smart. Um, which kind of um, changes the tone of her dialogue. Uh, like, uh, I wouldn't want to write her as a traditional teenager because um, before the they were aged up, she was already kind of like a, a sarcastic, like five-year-old or however old she was, like um, going toe-to-toe with adults a bit more easily. So now I feel like at this age, there should be even more of that. Like uh, in issue two... Um, you know, I have scenes with her and and uh, Doom, and they're they're like contemporaries. Like she's super smart, and she's maybe a touch evil and mischievous, and I think she understands Doom better than anyone. Like she's the one that uh, calls him Uncle Doom. Well, he's her godfather, isn't like, he? Because he is her. Yeah, exactly. Like there's there's there there's a, a strong connection there through continuity, um, but also I think just a little bit in outlook as well. Like she doesn't trust him. Um, because the stuff he does is stuff that maybe she would also do like in the future. Like there's, there's a bit of, there's a bit of that kind of synergy there that I like. So, so writing her is, like I said, a little bit easier because I don't have to portray her strictly as a teenager. Um, Franklin, I feel like I I have to, because he's, he doesn't have that, that added super intelligence. Right. Um, so he's basically, just finding his way through the world uh, like any teenager. And I, I felt it was important in issue one to kind of have uh, Sue um, have that story about her being, you know, the soccer player who, who injured herself and like, and how that put her into a depression when she was younger and how that, that can really affect you when you're young, when you think you've got this thing and then it gets taken away from you. Um, which as an adult, uh, less so because you understand that life is more than that. So, yeah. So there's, there's a bit more focus on Franklin um, and what losing his powers uh, will mean to him uh, because of his age. So that part was, it was interesting to me as somebody who's only somewhat familiar with current uh, fantastic four stuff, because this is a very different Franklin Richards than the little kid with dream powers we saw back in, you know, the eighties or, or later so yeah what's franklin's status quo coming into this series um basically after um the fantastic four were taken off the table uh uh in the sense that they were they were out creating um uh recreating the multiverse um using franklin and the molecule man's uh powers uh to do so at the end of it um there's a thing where his power uh, isn't really replenishing. It's like he's got a limited reserve of power. Um, so every time he uses it, it's, it has to be a really conscious choice because uh, it'll drain each time. Um, so that's, that's, that's where he's at and having to deal with uh, 
the fact that he may end up being normal in a family that is anything but normal. I want to go back a step to writing teams. You mentioned this is this is your first team book, and this is this is a hell of a place to jump in. As you mentioned, there are a lot of characters, and in addition to dealing with the individual dynamics of of two different teams, you're also dealing with the ways that those you know clash and interact. What have what have been sort of your touchstones for how to do this right? What are the books that you go to to see how those dynamics can be balanced well in a comic? <sighs> I mean, besides the original mini, which is excellent at it. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. The I'm really into the X-Men relaunch. Um, I've, I've really been enjoying it. And I think a lot of the key is to... Um, focus on one or two characters at a time and have the rest kind of fill in in the background. Uh, so I'm attempting to do that here. Um, like you can have a conversation with like between Franklin and Ben, but, um, but Ben doesn't necessarily take center stage. It just helps to reveal uh, part of what Franklin is thinking. So having the other characters there to help um, pull out what the main characters uh need, want, uh, what they're considering, I think is kind of key with stuff like this. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think like my favorite team book when I was younger was justice league international. Um, which is, yeah, just hilarious and wonderful. And, uh, and yeah, I, I felt like they, they were really good at, um, yeah, just providing focus on specific characters in each issue. Um, while not forgetting about the others with something like this, I kind of had to, uh, pick which X-Men, which mutants I was going to use. With the FF, it's easy enough. There's four of them with the two kids. Uh, with the X-Men stuff, it's a little bit harder. Part of it was just talking to the artist. Um, uh, Terry Dodson penciling and Rachel inking. Um, I wanted to know who they wanted to draw. Uh, because the last thing you want is an artist, you know, forced to draw the characters that they don't enjoy drawing. Well, and one of the things I think works about the characters uh, who who we do see, it's in large part, aside from the X-Men's leadership, it's in large part the Marauders. It's the team that yeah. Kitty's leading right now. And so I enjoy that she's, in a way, kind of, I mean, subservient's the wrong word, but she's working for Xavier and, and Magneto, but also mm-hmm. she has all these people that look up to her. And so when she gets to act as a very independent, almost slightly rebellious X-Man, like, she's got people to back her up. I like that she's not just the kid anymore. Yeah, I, I think in the uh, the X Men launch, Marauders is the one that uh, that uh, took me by surprise as to how much I, I loved it because of that. I think um, her being the focus, her having the difficulty entering Krakoa through gates, um, and her being in charge of that that team, which is a stronger bond, I think, than um, her and maybe Xavier, Magneto, Emma, like people on the council. Uh, yeah, so she's she's been really fun to write as a result. Yeah, this whole Captain Kate stage we're seeing right now has just been yeah. delightful. And so, yeah. yeah, having her be a bit out of place and then having Franklin and his family starting to feel more and more out of place, it just it just feels so natural. Yeah, thanks. It's yeah, it seem it seems to have worked. I'm I'm happy with the final product. Um and uh I know Terry and Rachel have been enjoying it as well, which is you know, 
better than good reviews from readers. I think <laughs> hearing from your artist that uh, they're enjoying working on the book is uh, is, uh, is a super delight. I kind of want to go back even further mm-hmm. and talk about you know the X-Men and the Fantastic Force. One of the questions that we tend to ask folks who come on the show who are writing X books or books connected to or, or featuring the X-Men are kind of how they define the X-Men, what they see as sort of that team's central characteristics, the things that differentiate them beyond they're all mutants. So I'm curious about your answer to that, but I'm also curious um, about your answer to that with regards to the Fantastic Four. Yeah, I mean, the Fantastic Four are easier to define because they're about family, but it's about um, it's about the traditional idea of family, the, the family that you're born with, um, besides Ben Grimm, who just feels like part of that family. And also they've been uh, celebrities. They've been superstars uh, because of their powers and how they've used them. And, uh, you know, they're the, they're the model for superheroes. You know, the Avengers can fall out of favor. The X-Men are almost always falling out of favor with the general public, but the Fantastic Four just feel like, um, you know, they call them the first family and, they, they do feel like that. Like they're the ones that everyone looks up to uh, and they have their, their squabbles and stuff, but they also remain pretty consistent. You have members come and members go, but you know, that core four members um, are the fantastic four. Whereas X-Men obviously like mutant populations can grow to millions, like pre Genosha, you know, they can be decimated down to like a couple hundred. Uh, um, they, the status quo of X-Men are just varies so wildly. Um, the core of it is about kind of banding together. Um, uh, the reasons for banding together are, you know, self-preservation, uh, to help others. Um, there, 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 there are a number of reasons for the X-Men to exist. Whereas Fantastic Four, there's like, there's like one reason to exist. They're, they're family. They're, they're together. And X-Men is about finding family. Um, things change with the X-Men so much, like the current iteration um, is obviously pretty large and grand. The idea of them as a nation. Um, and uh, that's an interesting thing to come into as a writer that, uh, that they're, they're on such a global scale and there's so many of them. And uh, the questions that they have are bigger than just the fantastic fours of like, what neighborhood should we live in? Right. And so you mentioned uh, really loving the current status quo, which I mean, yeah, totally us, us as well. It's blown us away. But yeah. do you have a particular era of X-Men that was kind of your era of X-Men or your lineup or anything along those lines? Um, I got into X-Men probably tail end of Paul Smith, just as John Mita Jr. was taking over. Uh, and I, I think I followed them straight through until uh, trying to think. I think basically until um, X Men One, like when Claremont, Jim Lee, the you know sells a million copies that that version. Um, that was when I kind of tapped out, uh, and for myself, partly is because everything leading up to that wasn't giving the fans what they wanted. Um, like no one was happy that they were split up in Australia for like a year or whatever. 
but we all read it because it was interesting and it was something that uh, you wanted to see what happened next. Uh, I think once they ended up all together in the mansion, kind of there was a bit of a happily ever after kind of bow tied on them at that point. Um, that's when I kind of realized, oh yeah, you know what? I'm that doesn't interest me as much. Um, it's the wild swerves that uh, Chris Claremont took uh, over those decades writing the characters that really appealed to me. Um, the unpredictability of it all, and uh, not necessarily giving fans what they wanted in terms of the roster as well. Like, like Rogue becoming an X-Man was just, that's wild. <laughs> like, she wasn't really a character. She was a villain. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm certain if you looked at the letters pages back then, well, even with Wolverine at first, at the letters pages, like, people didn't like them. Uh, but now they're, like, so popular, and they're just such a part of the mythos. Um, because they were integral to the story and the story dictated the characters. Um, so yeah, so all of, all of that, I love, uh, all, all the, all the weird swerves, um, I think, uh, exemplified comic book storytelling. Yeah. I'm reminded of even the original FF X-Men series. I mean, there were four almost brand new members of the team. Like you had Havoc who'd been around for a while, but yeah. then it was like Longshot and Dazzler and this Psylocke lady from some weird British yeah. comic. Like, it was constantly yeah. surprising us, and I, I love that about X-Men. And I mean, honestly, the current era is doing the same thing, just in a very different way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like you mentioned, like, Psylocke and Dazzler. Like, Dazzler was a joke character, and then they brought her in, and she, just, she was awesome. You know? like and, and Psylocke as well. Like, you know, the team didn't need another, you know, psychic telepath. <laughs> it really didn't. But it was all about... The, the character and how it enriched the story and uh yeah i love that like chris claremont clearly didn't give a fuck <laughs> <laughs> like he really didn't like if anything if letters came in saying i want to see more of this character he'd be like oh okay no i'm not going to write that character like it just had that feeling to it like he just kind of picked the ones that he thought were the most interesting and just go with them so i kind of want to go back to the fantastic four partly because mm -hmm. I've got a lot of questions about that just because the X-Men are kind of, the X-Men's the stuff I know, it's the stuff I'm used to yeah. talking about, but Fantastic Four are relatively new territory for me, as I think, I mean, I know there are p folks who listen to this podcast who follow the Fantastic Four, but I think I think overwhelmingly the people listening are going to be coming in from kind of yeah. the X-Men's direction. Of course. And one of, one of the questions that came up, and one of the things I think that the original X-Men Fantastic Four series handled very deftly and with a lot more nuance than it often is and that it looks like you're going to be pretty directly addressing too is the question of reed richard's ethics yeah and especially as a parent because he is he is someone who honestly there's no character whom the current iteration of charles xavier reminds me more yeah he's got that that same hubris that same sense of Entitlement's not quite the word I'm looking for, yeah. But, but, but just of of his own absolute rectitude of himself as kind of the fixed point around which other things vary. Yeah, yeah. And it's one of those things where a character like that they can be right um, in their thoughts and their actions ninety nine percent of the time, but the one percent that they're not, it's going to go really poorly. Um, and I, I think that's I think that's Reed. I think that's Charles as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. Reed Richards is a 
is an amazing character to write because of that, because his entire thing is to solve problems and, uh, and the recognition that he's smart enough to do that. Uh, and so what are his responsibilities to the world? What are his responsibilities to his family? Um, how far can you go before you've overstepped your boundaries? And the stuff with being a parent too is huge. Like, you know, the kids are born into the Fantastic Four, and that means there's going to be enemies after them. And um, one of the things I love in Marvel Comics is um, playing out scenarios where if it was in the real world, Reed may be right. Because chances are very high those kids are going to be murdered. Far more than any other kid walking down the street. <laughs> yeah. But we know in the comics that that's not going to happen, um, which means Reed is wrong in the comics. It's like, is Tony Stark right in Civil War? No, he's not. He's not in the comics. If it was in the real world, yeah, he probably might be. Like, because it's it becomes a whole other thing once uh, once reality is uh, a part of the scenario. So the idea, like Dan Slott, earlier in the year wrote in a Fantastic Four comic. That, uh, that it was indicated that Franklin and Valeria um, are chipped. They have something in them, on them, whatever. Um, so the Fantastic Four can find them in case their enemies steal them. Um, and, and when I read that, I'm like, okay, yeah, that is, a, that is a very Reed Richards thing to do. And one of those smart parent moves that's going to backfire in them spectacularly. <laughs> and uh, and that, that played into my decision in this book to take that um, to the next step, which is to stop Franklin's ability to go through those gates. And the easiest way would be to mask his X-gene. Um, it's not, uh, I've written it so it's not a, as invasive as chipping as gonna be an actual device. But, uh, but still it's, you know, that's wildly inappropriate for Reed to do that um, and not tell him um so there's got to be repercussions to that and so also in the collection of very smart men who do wildly inappropriate things we've got xavier we've got reed we've also got doom who at the end of number one has just showed up and obviously he was a great big uh player in the original fantastic four x-men series he's got this history with Kitty Pride, you know, he helped save her life. He's certainly got a history with like all of the Richardses. Yeah. Well, and Storm. Oh yeah. Uh, and and Storm as well, absolutely, cuz yeah. villains have to fall in love with Storm to be real villains. That's like part that's something <laughs> they need to do before they can walk. Like you return your library books, you fall in love with Storm and then you get your villain diploma. Um Miles, Miles, everyone falls in love with Storm. Yeah, yeah, that's just a given. Fair, fair. Um but I don't know. It's interesting. Like we have these these differing perspectives. We have the Richardses saying, no, we want to live among humanity. We want to have these diverse experiences for our family. And the mutants saying, yeah, we tried that. Didn't work. We're doing our own thing. So is that something where we're going to see Doom as a third perspective? Or is he just being Doom and talking in the third person a whole lot and trying to defeat that fool Richards? Yeah. I mean, Doom is definitely playing both sides. Um well, he's playing. He's playing three sides, really, because he's also going to be playing with Franklin, and uh, um, with his own agenda in mind. I don't want to give too much away, but but uh, Doom was crucial to this series. 
and also um, to help solidify uh, Latveria's relationship to Krakoa. Um, because we've, 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 if you pay attention to the, 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 the data pages, the graphs, like Latveria is one of the countries that did not sign on um, to have trade with Krakoa. And, uh, and we get into that here uh, as well. So yeah, yeah. Was, part of the fun of this project too is just setting up stuff for uh, down the line. Like we get to answer questions in it, but also um, I'm kind of handing off uh, to Dan Slot and to Hickman and his teams um, pieces of of a puzzle that they can use uh, down the line, which is a lot of fun. Doom's great. Like I love writing Doom. Like Marvel Two in One was like a dream job for me. Um, and I haven't really had a chance since then to write him kind of more in full on villain mode. And, uh, and he's him and Emma Frost are characters I love writing. Speaking of, of other Marvel books you've, you've written and specifically I'm thinking of the defenders. We've had a number of people who actually wrote in to ask whether we're going to be seeing Namor in this as well. No, I will say that for sure. We're, we're not seeing Namor in this, um, because that was just too much for what's going on. Um, having the, the four different perspectives, X-Men, Fantastic Four, Doom, Franklin, um, was a lot to kind of balance in the four issues. And I think it would do a disservice to Namor, really, and his relationship with uh, with both teams to, to throw him in there as well. Like, if this does well, I would love to do a follow-up, um, which is, focuses on Namor. Um, because he has such a great tie to both those teams. Oh man, yeah, I'm just imagining him on top of everybody else, and it would just be him, Xavier, Magneto, and Doom, just all yelling and declaiming, and with just walls of text on every page. And you'd occasionally see Franklin in the corner being like, uh, "Hello, can I? Can I just hello? Any yeah. maybe a little?" It would be great. <laughs> I mean, by great, I mean terrible, but entertaining. Also, it's, it's a little tricky. Like I enjoy writing Namor, but uh, I also know that Hickman is so much better at writing Namor than I am. Like even just like he had like one page and like powers of X, I think, or powers of 10. And, uh, and it was so perfect. I was like, God damn it. Like I just spent like 12 issues writing that character and he did it better in one page. Um, cause uh, you know, if you do go back and read, um, fantastic four, the Hickman run is fantastic. And it has some especially great Namor moments. So this is something I, I was thinking about when I read this, but kind of solidified in my mind as we were discussing it and especially discussing Franklin. We talk a lot, and the, anyone who talks about the X-Men t- talks a lot about the idea of the mutant metaphor. That's something that's an, a concept that's really shifted a lot since the establishment of Krakoa. But in this story, I think there's there's a lot to be read through or read into it about, you know, Franklin, his relationship to his his birth family, what the X-Men represent to him, and what it represents to be a kid who's who's working out parts of their identity that they might not have in common with, with their, with their parents and that their parents might see as, as containing inherent risk. How much of that is something that you hold on to or keep an eye out for when you're writing a book like this? Um, yeah, the Franklin stuff is super tricky because, um, because the fantastic four for all intents and purposes, you know, they have superpowers like the X-Men, you know, they're, he's being raised in a situation which is um, 
which is fully supportive of him and his superpowers, right? And his abilities. Uh, I kind of liken it to like, like uh, a queer kid being raised by um, lefty, super well-meaning parents who will always say that they understand um, and are super supportive, but they don't understand 100%. Um, and that kid has to find their community outside of that, if that makes sense. As a kid who was raised in precisely that situation, yes, that makes a ton of sense. <laughs> and that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's cool to hear because I think it's, it's so easy to read things into stuff like this that aren't there mm -hmm. or that have complicated, um, relationships with, 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 with authorship and with, with reader projection. And I mean, you know, that this is, this is a line that a lot of people come to, who are looking for representation that they they can't necessarily find in superhero books directly. Yeah. And it's always kind of it's always kind of a magical moment to find out that sort of the way that a story hit me with regards to who I am and how I grew up and all of that was actually deliberate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and like that's you, you try and think of it from all the different angles too, especially considering where the X-Men books are right now. Like it's so big it's hard sometimes to remember um, the smaller stories of, of struggle within the community. Like the, we're talking like United Nations stuff right now, like um, nation building and, um, and the idea of uh, integration versus being secluded or separate. Um, and those, those are, those are grand, huge ideas that, you know, Hickman and his amazing, uh, roster of writers and artists are are handling well over there. Here, I'm, I'm trying to keep it as much of a focus on on this young man and um, and what his identity means to him, and um, if he's willing to turn his back on his family if need be, um, in order to kind of embrace um, who he is in the community that's been presented to him. With, with with this book in particular, but also just with the X-Men relaunchers, like I know uh, all the creators on all the books are, you know, asking for a lot of trust in the direction that they're going. And sometimes the answers won't be um, set up right away. And that's just, that's just the nature of the storytelling. Um, you know, my concern always, um, I, I was just having this conversation today with, um, I'm working with Anthony Oliveira on a, uh, uh, a um, empire Hulkling, right? The Hulkling, yeah. And you know, there's there's scenes that you know will feel like a gut punch, and um, and uh, Anthony's like, you know, we're delivering this gut punch, and you know, I'm worried um, how the reader's going to react. I'm like, yes, but you give them the salve within the story, so it'll be fine. Like, um, it becomes tricky when the salve doesn't happen within that story, and you it comes in the next issue or the issue after that or something like you've set up something terrible and people are just like are hurt by it. And you're like, you don't want to hurt the reader, but you also want to be able to give them moments of tension within the story. So it's, it's, it's a tricky balancing act. Um, especially with the speed of things now um, that, yeah, it's, it's, it's always on my mind as to, as to um, how to treat the characters and their journeys. So we put out a call for questions and a ton of you sent them in and I'm going to skip, I think about three quarters of them just because they're things that we covered over the course of the conversation anyway. 
which leaves us with a, a pretty eclectic bunch. Let's see, we already talked about Namor. Um, here's a question. So this is this is something that I'm going to extend a little bit, but um, uh, JRO99 asks, how do you balance comedy and drama differently when dealing with your own creations versus already exact? existing properties like the X-Men and the Fantastic Four or Spider-Man. And I'm going to ask in addition to that, how do you balance and switch tones when you're writing multiple very different books in the same universe or line at a time? Um, switching tones is easy uh, because it's a relief. Because uh, if you're working on something that's kind of like I'm doing Daredevil right now, so it's pretty grim. <laughs> um, and to be able to switch to something that's lighter um is is a total relief and uh i'm the kind of person that i i need multiple projects on the go in order to be able to do that um yeah because i don't know how somebody just writes dour grim stuff all the time or even just comedy all the time like i kind of feel like you need to recharge your batteries um the the difference between creator owned and um you know the corporate comics i guess uh is the, the corporate stuff is pretty well defined um, in a sense, it makes it a little bit easier because you don't have to create the whole world. Um, like you kind of know how specific characters sound, and you and uh, you have a you have a good feel for them based on all the comics you've read before. Whereas the creator-owned stuff, it's it's kind of like a wild west. Like you just everything's just open, and um, you have to kind of figure out your tone as you go and figure out character backstories and. Um, in, in a lot of ways that's more challenging like a lot of people think the freedom of it makes it easier because you can do whatever but um, sometimes freedom can be uh uh creatively can be um can kind of halt you in your tracks a little bit uh but like i i know spider-man like i know his voice uh or jughead jughead was super easy to write because like i think if any of us sat down and said hey here's a story you need to write featuring archie betty and Veronica and Jughead, like everyone kind of instinctually gets those voices if you've grown up with them. Totally. Yeah. Um, and I mean, yeah, talking about the, uh, the constraints in some ways fueling creativity. Um, I know that's something that we've always been grateful for with this show. It's like, Oh, we're just talking about other people's stuff in order. That's way easier. Uh, well, one thing I'll, one thing I'll add with the, uh, the writing kind of creator or uh, corporate characters is the tricky part, especially with um, franchises like the X Men, is there? There's so many versions of the same character. Like every generation, kind of has their idea of how like Cyclops should sound, or even like with Spider Man. I experienced that with Spider Man. Like people have specific eras of the character, um, and deviations from that kind of throw them off. Um, so that's a little tricky dealing with uh, decades upon decades of. Um, different writers tackling those characters and kind of having to choose which ones you uh you want to write so for your uh, kitty especially in this miniseries uh were there specific areas of kitty that you were focusing on more in terms of bringing those aspects over to the fore honestly just marauders um i'm trying to be as current as possible with the characters and i sometimes slip like um i found writing magneto uh tricky because um Hickman's version is a bit more restrained and whereas I have him screaming a bit more uh and I think at one point it refers to Franklin Richards as a precious bobble which is not something <laughs> which is not something a person would ever say but it just feels like something Magneto would shout um but maybe not the current version 
so there's there's choices that have to be made um but i'm trying to i'm trying to keep it as close to what's happening now as possible because that's what other readers are reading currently and um and i want to be able to reinforce what uh, the other creators are producing. Although one callback I really did, did appreciate was Magneto wearing his fuchsia outfit with the great big M on the chest at one point. Yes. Yes, I did. I did. It's funny because I told Terry, I'm like, you know, I mean, this new version of the X-Men, they can wear whichever costume for whatever era they want. Like they're treating them as their clothing. Um, but I did specifically ask him for that because I'm like that it means something, you know, like I, I think all the, the outfits that the characters are choosing um, in this, um, in this new X-Men era, uh, they're, they're not just random choices that the creators are, are putting forth. And I realized, speaking of callbacks, we should have mentioned this, that when we introduced you, that did, you are also actually, even before you were on this book, it's, uh, you were a super Dr. astronaut, Peter Corbo award member for a specific callback actually for best callback, I think last year. Oh, really? Not 2019, 2018. In whichever year you were in the holiday special and and, and mm. brought back the, the exchange of yes. uh, self-portraits. Um, you know how that started? It started like several years ago when uh, I emailed, because Nick Lowe, um, the editor at Marvel, emailed me pitching me a book and I didn't want to do the book. So I wrote back and said, I don't think that's an appropriate book, but... I said, I want to do a Marvel book called Panels, which we just like take a panel from a classic Marvel book and tell the story behind that panel. So I want to do a full issue of Wolverine going to Sears and getting that photo taken and then framed to give it to Kurt because <laughs> I love that panel so much. And, uh, and yeah, for some reason, Marvel didn't jump at that idea. Of that title, that low, low selling title that well, I pitched them. Well, as as the precise target audience for that series, we're all for it. <laughs> as long as you also explain why Wolverine had a turkey leg the size of his torso in that same page. Not only that, like I believe in the original panel, it's white. Like the entire turkey leg is white. I think when I was coloring that, because I redrew that panel for that page, and I had to make a decision as to whether or not I was going to color it like a turkey leg or color it just straight white um i chose the color as a turkey leg <laughs> i never noticed see this is why you're a professional artist and uh i am not <laughs> that was such that was a yeah, that was a last second job too like so one of the stories fell through and they needed that like over the weekend um so they didn't really have an opportunity to tell me no which is sometimes the best jobs the last second ones where they're just like we'll take it whatever it is i'm like great have i got the story for you <laughs> Speaking of things you might want to slide in at the last minute, um, Zoop Boop Loop asks, um, Chip, now that the mutants have their resurrection protocols and Krakoa, what characters would you be most excited to have the chance to kill? <laughs> to kill. <laughs> I, I guess with no consequences. I mean, I feel like I don't I don't think that's a question that really requires the resurrection protocols, but No, no, and I'm not the bloodthirsty type. I don't know if I've actually killed a character. I'm trying to think. I mean, I've killed like you know civilians in comics. Um, well, I guess I did. Yeah, maybe a couple have killed, but I, I I always made sure I I created them and then killed them. I always feel bad killing off someone else's creation. Um, so yeah, I don't really have an answer for that because I'm not the bloodthirsty type. Well, then, do you have an answer for this? 
Asimov Fangirl would like to know whether Garfield is a mutant, and if so, which X-team he would join. Um, that would make sense, based on the uh, unusual shape of Garfield and the fact that he's lived for far too long. Um, yeah, what team would he be on? Oof. I feel like he'd just be in the main book and he'd be on the Quiet Council. Because uh, the Quiet Council gets all the best snacks. Oh man, we'd have some Krakoan lasagna made out of those really weird colorful fruits. Mm-hmm, exactly. Okay, so we've, we've got a question here. This is from Lesbian Jubilee who asks, Many have noted the similarities between Matt Murdock and Scott Summers' appearances when out of costume. Yes, I have written an entire horrifying Tumblr <laughs> explainer on how to tell them apart, even when the colorists screw up. And yeah. the answer is you usually can. But anyway, um, the question continues. If they tried to switch occupations for a day, Barbie princess and the pauper style, what do you think would happen? Oh, between uh, Scott and Matt Murdock? Yes, but specifically in reference to Barbie princess and the pauper. Barbie princess and the pauper? I'm unfamiliar. I'm far too old to understand that reference. I know what prince and the pauper is. I'm I'm guessing from the from the context of the question that they just switch that they they just sort of switch identities and jobs. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I believe it's been covered in most of the Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen uh, movies as well, that scenario. Yeah. Uh, not not to mention recent uh, Netflix holiday uh, holiday film, The Princess Switch. See, wow, they really, uh, they really hit the nail on the head with that title. Yeah, they're, <laughs> um, they're not subtle. Well, that's a, that's, that's a good question. Uh, Scott would be... I think he actually would be a pretty good lawyer. and But since Scott doesn't have a job... <laughs> he'd probably be a more responsible lawyer than Matt. I don't know if he'd actually be a better one. That, yeah, okay, that's true. I don't think he'd be better, but I think he'd be relatively decent at it. Um, and Matt Murdock... I guess Scott's current occupation is general. I think Matt Murdock would be um, uh, quite bad at that. I think he'd just he'd debate the ethics of even being a general, and uh, everything would fall apart. He would just be sitting there philosophizing as the carnage just increased around him from his inactivity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's too much. Too much responsibility. There's a reason Daredevil isn't on any teams. This is this is also one of those identity swaps that fundamentally only works in one direction because one of the characters is always surrounded by telepaths. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> So many telepaths. It would be fine. He would just have a visor that was actually covered in tinfoil. I'm pretty sure that works. Do you know how few telepaths there are that aren't mutants? I never really thought about it, but you know you're right. It's wild. I had to, I, I forget what it was, but I had to like find a telepath that wasn't a mutant, um, that wasn't on Krakoa, and it took a long, long time. It's such a default mutant power. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it makes some sense, you know, that the first mutant we really hear about is a telepath, so the precedent was set. Yeah. yeah well, and also, it's this is going to sound strange, but it's a kind, it's a really intimate superpower. It's the kind of thing, like, it, it's something that you think of as as sort of modifying someone's fairly fundamental self, not as as something they can just sort of pick up and tack on along the way. Yeah, it, it also, I mean, it's the only mutant ability that really makes sense in terms of evolution. Like, like you'd, you'd just assume that the next step in human evolution would be something to do with our minds, since that's clearly the direction that evolution is taking us. But it would probably wouldn't be 
bone claws coming out of our arms. I mean, as much as that would be kind of cool. <laughs> That'd be cool, but... <laughs> cool, but really gross. The next step in evolution is you fire optic blasts now uncontrollably. <laughs> Man, evolution sucks. No, no, because like, that's that's a, a, the, the uncontrollable isn't part of the mutation. Oh, sorry. Even if he could control it. Yeah, no, it's it's it's, it's a kind of awful power. I, I I feel like just in terms of thinking about what are the genetic odds, Glob Herman's a pretty good go-to too. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations, you're the next step in human evolution. You are made out of Glob. translucent paraffin wax, and chickens like you. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So telepaths makes the most sense. Well, on that note, I think we have time for, for one more question. So let's bring back some of your previous work in relation to your current. Well, previous and current. Uh, yes, previous and current. That's true. Uh, because Unless you know something I don't. Have I been fired off one of these jobs? I, I, I hope not. Oh, geez. But Stormy Decisis asks on Twitter, how would Dr. Doom's life be different if he could stop time when he climaxed? Um, ha- has Doom climaxed? That's an interesting question. Well, he's got he's got kids. Yeah. Who aren't robots. That doesn't necessarily mean he climaxed. That's true. It's weird to picture him. Uh, yeah. I don't want to see his old face. <laughs> I mean, there's a mask well, in the way. He wears the mask. <laughs> he, he's always wearing that mask. That's true. Um... Yeah, I mean, I feel like uh, I feel like Doom could um, could stop time if he actually really put his mind to it. So I don't think uh, he would even need that ability. If he had that ability, he would probably just use it to um, probably the way I'd use it, just work more. Oh man! <laughs> like like if you could stop time and just like catch up on your deadlines, like that's kind of what I would do. And I think oh, Doom is the same amazing. way. Like, yeah. Oh yeah, I know, <laughs> isn't it? The associations one would develop right there. Mm-hmm. Well, in Doom, we also know already that Doom has built multiple time machines before. He's he's yeah. got the ability to travel in time, and I feel like he would he would consider that sort of a primitive and undignified way to do way to go about it. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the last listener question we've got time for. Chip, thank you so much for coming on. We know you're currently writing X Men and Fantastic Four. What other books of, of yours are currently coming out that folks can find and get at their local comic shops or local internets? Ooh, well, uh, I'm currently writing uh, Daredevil for Marvel as well, um, doing a book called Afterlift with Jason Liu uh, for Comixology. And let's see, there's things that I can't announce. I just won't do that here because that would be weird. Um, and uh, Sex Criminals, which I illustrate and co-create, uh, is coming out monthly Fingers crossed from Image Comics. Listeners, if you click over to the visual companion for this episode, we will post links to Chip's website, Twitter, Instagram, etc. Or you don't have to. Who cares? Who cares where I am online? You know, we 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 try to we try to be consistent about that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, Chip, thank you again so much. It has been a blast talking to you. Yes, yeah, it's great. Thank you very much. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. True to topic today, I am handing the mic over to Sexy Doctor Doom. I do not tell me that the pride girl and the son of that fool Richards have reunited.
Perhaps it is time that Doom remembers his own tendencies of decades past. No, not that thing with Arcade. Who said that? Doombots, destroy them! Nay, Doom refers to his chivalrous affection toward the most regal and attractive of his worthy foes. Storm has sealed herself in the feeble nation-state of Krakoa. So Doom shall move on! Laz Pycock. Your misguided yet admirable heroism shines like a cold, bitter star in the dark of Latveria's sky. Doom offers you the science of his carefully practiced metal caress and the sorcery of his passionate heart. You shall know pleasures untold in Doom's embrace. And yet, you tell Doom that your ideals contradict his. A barrier to even the strongest desire? Very well. Doom respects consent, and Doom holds you in his esteem. Deviant Monica, you shall have the honor of serving Doom as his bride and consort. You shall be adorned with the finest green tunic at Doom's side, and Doom shall apply his considerable skills in the ways of Latverian sensuality in your service. You shall experience pleasure and power in equal measure, and be desired and feared by our strangely medieval populace. But hold, you too reject Doom? Because of that fool, Richards? Bah! Doom shall have his revenge! The Swear's Doom! And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, Portland, Oregon, and this week somewhere in New Zealand and produced by Matt Hunter. Special thanks to our guest today, Chip Starsky. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode, and check out X-Men and Fantastic Four number one, which should theoretically be in comic shops now. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, at last, Legion Quest. For real this time. Probably. Probably.